We're going to look in our uh, copy of God's Word this morning to Luke chapter 1 once again. Luke chapter 1. We're kind of following along in the what you might call the Advent songs of Luke for his first two chapters. Uh, he tells us about um, three or four songs, depending on how you want to count them. And um, we looked at uh, Zechariah's song for the first two weeks, and uh, I just thought it was appropriate to look at Mary's song this morning, uh, traditionally known as the Magnificent. Um, it is a, um, I, I just butchered the Latin. Apparently me and Latin don't get along either. But uh, it's known as the Magnificent, and that is uh, because the first word in the Latin is uh, where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And so, a uh, wonderful song of joy. I have actually preached this text before, but I've always preached it for Mother's Day. So, uh, this will be the first time I've preached it in relation to Advent, but that's okay. Um, it's a song all about the joy of Christ coming into the world, Mary knowing what the Lord is going to do and her role to play in it. And I just think it's a wonderful song for us to, sing, uh, for us to read. And it has been sung before, and uh, you can do that. There are metrical versions of it out there that you can put to a tune that you know. But uh, I'm just gonna invite you to follow along and your copy of the Word of God, or if you wanna use the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 1017, uh, 1017 or Luke chapter one. And we're just gonna read this together. Or, of course, you can follow along on the board. It says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. May his Blessing be upon it and the explanation of it. This morning, uh, as you know, the third week of Advent is, um, is signifies joy, and it, and it comes from the joy of the angels, the joy of the shepherds, and, and their joy in sharing. I've mentioned before that uh, joy is never really complete, is it, until you want to tell someone about it. There's, there's just, it, it seems like it's just kind of incomplete until you have the opportunity to share that joy with someone else. And so that's one reason in the free church traditions, we often uh, associate this week with evangelism as well. Uh, that's, that tends to be the week that we do the Lottie Moon uh, week of prayer and those kinds of things. That's all kind of tied in together traditionally. Now, why we do the pink candle on the third week, I'm not exactly sure where that comes from. But, uh, but even then, you've got kind of different traditions here and there. But it's all about the joy that comes from Christ coming into the world. And again, we don't just celebrate his birth, but we also celebrate mostly his incarnation, the entire life 
of Christ, how he earned that righteousness. Whereas Easter, we tend to focus on the passive obedience of Christ, where uh, he went to the cross and he died for our sins, and then he rose on the third day. <clears throat> Whereas around the, uh, this time of year, we celebrate the active obedience. That is, in other words, he lived for 30-something years, depending on your chronology, and he actively obeyed his father so that he earned the righteousness that you and I need. In other words, it's not just about forgiveness of sins, but you and I need positive righteousness that is applied to our hearts and applied to our account. And Christ in his incarnation accomplished that for us. And so if all he did was forgive our sins, then we're just back to the same spot that Adam and Eve was at the beginning. And my guess is we probably last about as long as they did. And yet Christ did more than that. We are in a better position. It is a better covenant, according to the book of Hebrews, because it not only forgives our sin, but it, he actively applies his own righteousness to us as if the judge in the courtroom takes off his judge's robe. He places that on the convict and takes the convict's striped uniform, prison uniforms and places that on himself. It would be the same kind of transaction. Same kind of deal, except in a much more profound way. And so that's why you have songs that, that talk about joy. In fact, Andy Williams years ago, and I, I was uh, listening, I was in my study at home kind of reflecting on the message this morning. I heard the kids downstairs watching some movie and I heard it. It was Andy Williams' old song. You remember this? It's the most wonderful time of the year. You remember that? And, and in the song, he celebrates the traditions. He celebrates the times of laughter and the times and the memories that we all have with our families and kids songs of joy and all of these kinds of things. And the second song, he's in good company because the second song we're looking at, Mary's song, is also all about the joy that comes with Christ coming into the world. It is all about the rejoicing, magnifying the Lord, rejoicing in him from the deepest part of ourselves, from the joy that comes. She says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. I proclaim him to be mighty. I proclaim him to be magnified, majestic, and my spirit rejoices the deepest part of me from the deepest part of myself. It rejoices in God, my Savior, you know, the truth is, unfortunately, and we always have to bring this up, is that for, for many, this time of year is not always associated with joy. Some of those very memories that Andy Williams sings about become memories of pain for many people. For some people, it is a time of stress and running around. Brother uh, Stephan, there in his intercessions, was talking about for many of us, we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off and uh, uh, putting ourselves into massive debt in order to try to make kids happy and, and those kinds of things. It's become kind of a rat race for many people. For some, those very temporary happiness is, is in what receiving what they want is, is really the only joy that they expect. And of course, we know how fleeting that happiness is. Last year's toy that was so important that we so had to have it, this year is yesterday's news. 
And so that fleeting happiness that, that our culture so looks toward for this time of year, if we can just get that one thing that will make us happy, then that will last us until next year when this season of joy comes along again. And of course, it never quite seems to work out. A lot like uh, New Year's resolutions. They, they, it tends to go away pretty quick. And so, and I think a lot of that is because in our culture today, we we, we kind of tend to associate, and even the church does this to a certain extent, we associate joy and happiness together. Now, now they're related, they are related, and sometimes they're used interchangeably, but, but there is, I think, a difference in that happiness is very circumstantial, it's very dependent on circumstances and what we're receiving and what's going on in our life, whereas the joy of God the joy of the Holy Spirit is a spiritual fruit that is implanted within us. It is, a, it is a disposition of the soul from which our satisfaction in Christ springs forth. It doesn't depend on circumstances. It doesn't depend. We can have the most awful circumstances in the world, and that doesn't mean that we're happy about it. You know, Christians get depressed too. It's okay. And just because you're not feeling happy like you're supposed to this time of year, it doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean that you're somehow less of a Christian. It doesn't mean that if you have to walk in to church even this morning and put on that fake smile so you can let, not let everybody know what's really going on in your heart, that you are feeling a deep sorrow for loved ones gone or, or those kinds of things. It, 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 the joy, that joyful disposition of the soul does not negate those things. But what it does do is it gives us hope and it gives us satisfaction. It, lets, it tells us and it makes us aware and joyful in the fact that this world, as sorrowful as it can come, it is not the end of our story. I've said it often before that this is as close to hell as we're ever gonna get. And so no matter how bad the world gets, we have a joyful disposition that is implanted by the Holy Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit, but it is also something that we can cultivate, just like earthly agriculture, just like you would growing muscadines in your backyard or, or a grapevine or planting a garden. There's Really nothing you can do to make the plants grow, but you can cultivate them so that they can grow in a healthy way. And that is the same way that the joy of the Holy Spirit works. And so we're gonna do that this morning. We're gonna talk about that from this song and that we can increase our joy by praising God for the deliverance that he brought us during this time. We can increase our joy. We can cultivate our joy during this time of year, regardless of our circumstances, and just by remembering two truths that come with this time. Number one, that he, that he has saved us, and number two, that he has also saved the world. He has saved us, but he has also saved the world. So let's look at verses 48 through 50. Number one, Mary sings about this great joy because her God, her Savior, has delivered her. And in the first stanza of the song that goes from verse 48 down to verse 50, uh, you will notice that it is all about Mary and her personal deliverance. 
from God, how God has worked in her, how God has chosen Mary. And we get really a glimpse of her heart here. She says in verse 48, for he has looked upon the low estate, the lowliness of his slave. This, this glimpse of her heart comes from this lowliness that she talks about. It's a, it's a term that the Greeks did not like. In fact, to be lowly, to be of low estate was something that was shameful. It was something that was to be avoided, that if you had any kind of societal pool or any kind of uh, track record whatsoever, it's something that you did not want. The Old Testament, on the other hand, often used this same term to speak of the oppressed, to speak of those who are in slavery, who are in foreign domination, uh, bitterly oppressed, mistreated, abused. And they were people who had absolutely no say, no power, nothing whatsoever. It was the haves who had everything, and it was the have-nots who had literally nothing. And that is what this is talking about, is that those who are at the very, very bottom rung of society, at the absolute last class, and that people look on them with scorn, and people look on them with shameful uh, disposition. And God says that when he comes to get them out of Egypt, he says, I have seen the low estate of my people and I have come to rescue them. I have come to rescue them. She says here, but in this decisive moment, she says, for behold, from now on, from this moment, from the moment that Christ has come into her womb, from this moment on, all generations will now call her blessed. What a reversal. Now, don't misunderstand that. It doesn't mean that she expects to be prayed to. It doesn't mean that she expects to be venerated. But she does know that this is going to change her life. This is going to change everything about her. In fact, as she looks down, she understands that this is not something that God has done in her because of her. But as you look, it says, all generations will call me blessed. Why? Because verse 49, because he who is mighty has done great things for me. The source of those who call her blessed is not because they're blessing Mary, but because they're a blessing the God who blessed Mary. And they recognize her role to play in the, uh, in the drama of redemption. I mean, what a reversal this is. Think about everything I just said about being of low estate. And think about this young lady who's probably no more than 15 or 16 years old. She has a little bit of say in who she gets to marry, but for the most part, it's arranged. In a small, living, unknown village in the middle of nowhere, poor family, had it not been for this, she would have disappeared into the abyss of nameless, faceless masses of history. And we never would have even heard of her. And yet, because she came, because God looked upon her and has done mighty things, God has acted on her behalf, and now she has one of the most recognized names in all of human history. What a reversal. 
to go from an anonymous 15 or 16-year-old girl to the, the second name, probably the second most popular name in all of human history behind Christ himself. What a reversal. And why is that? Because of the last two phrases in the first stanza, he, she says, because his name is holy and his mercy is from generation to generation. Now, I know we usually just kind of read past that, but I want you to think about what she's saying there. God, his name is holy. What does that mean? That means that he is separated. That means that he is devoted to his own glory. That means that he is righteous, that he is just, and that any uncleanness, any sin, any kind of disobedience, any kind of, of, of treachery or treason, anything that we commit, a holy God cannot simply excuse it. Sin must be punished. In order for a holy God to be holy, he must punish sin. That is absolute. For God not to do that would be less than holy. For God not to do that would be less than righteous. For God not to do that would be less than just. And yet, as you read on, he sa she says, and yet his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What is God's mercy? The fact that God loves us and the fact that God looks down at us and that, that the God sees us and that he wants to forgive us and that he wants to bring us in and that he chooses to forgive our sin. And yet a holy God cannot do that. A merciful God cannot but do that. So you have God's holiness, you have God's love and mercy, and all of that comes together in a tension that the Old Testament can never solve. That from Genesis to Revelation, God's holiness and God's, and God's love and forgiveness are held in tension, and it never solves that equation. It never brings it together. And what Mary understands is that that riddle, that tension, that, that unresolved mystery that the Old Testament can never solve has now been solved in the child that she is going to deliver. God exercises his holiness, righteousness, and justice with Christ on the cross. And because he dies on the cross for our sins, because the price is paid, God can forgive us and bring us to himself. The mystery is solved. The tension is God is gone. God solved our problem. And he solved it in the person and the child that is in the womb. At this time when Mary is singing this, probably no more than five months old. He solved the dilemma. Mary, now, Mary is unique. She has a unique place in redemptive history. Many of the truths that she says here are about her. But I want you to understand that there are precious truths here that apply to every single Christian who is saved. That while her experience in redemptive history is unique, her experience of salvation is not. 
And as you look at it, look at some of the things she says. And in verse, uh, going back to verse 48, she says, he has looked on the humble estate, the lowliness of his slave. That's such a precious truth that God looks upon. Look, in Genesis 16, chapter 13, there is this, there's this woman named Hagar who has a child out of God's will. She's a concubine given to Abraham because he doesn't understand the supernatural aspect of the birth of the promised son. And she is running from Sarah. She's running trying to protect her child. And the angel of Yahweh, the, the messenger of Yahweh, first time we see him in the Old Testament is to Hagar. And he tells her that I am with you and I see you. And as he assures her, so Hagar called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. El Roy, El Roy, if you wanna make it a little easier for English. El Roy, the God who sees. And if you trace that theme through the Pentateuch and through really the rest of the Old Testament. But watch this in Exodus chapter in Exodus chapter three and verse seven, when the angel of the Lord appears, the angel of Yahweh appears to Moses in the burning bush. And Yahweh says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. You see, when God is gonna act for our deliverance, it begins with him seeing us. He is the God of seeing and he sees us and he chooses to act on our behalf. He is the God of seeing and, and, and Mary is using that same term to say that my God has looked upon me. The natural impulse of the sinner is to what? To hide from the God who sees to conceal our sins. Adam did it in the garden. Jonah did it in the well. Not all of that was his choice. But we're still hiding from God. Proverbs chapter 28, 13 says that whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsake them will obtain mercy. Oh, beloved, why would we hide from the God who sees us? It is those who do not understand his mercy, those who do not experience his mercy, those are the ones who try to conceal his view from us. We still do that today. We justify ourselves. We, we try to come up with excuses. We, we do everything we can. Beloved, sin grows in secret. It feeds on silence. The last thing a sinner wants to do is to be seen. The last thing that shame wants to do is to be seen. That's why we don't ask for help. Because when you ask for help, what do you have to do? You have to be vulnerable. You have to express your weakness. Oh, sinning brother, sister, mother, child, if you will stop hiding your sin, if you will stop trying to hide it from God, if you will let God see you in your sin, in your weakness, then he will fight for you. 
And here's the great news. He's already won. He already won on the cross. Come out in the open. Stop trying to hide behind a failed string of leaves that you're sowing to yourself to try to cover up. Come into the light. Come into the goodness of God. Let God fight your war against sin, against hell, against death. Let him fight it for you because he's already won. And he's already taken it to the cross. And just like he did for Mary, he will reverse your story. All of those things that others meant for evil, God will use them for good. All of the good, the bad, the ugly, all things that come into our lives, you can know the comfort of all of those things working together. Doesn't mean everything's good. Doesn't mean everything's great. But what it does mean that all things work together in a perfect sovereign jigsaw puzzle that God puts together and creates a mosaic of your life that all works to the good of those who love God. We walk in him and know his mercy. This is the salvation God offers every single person on the planet. Offers every individual person. And yet it's not merely just an individual salvation. It's not just an individual salvation. It's not just about Mary any more than it's just about you or me. He has not just only saved us, but he has also saved the world. That our story is part of a bigger story. Our story is a cog in the bigger machine. Our story is simply one chapter, really just one page, one vapor of the breath of God telling his story to the world. There was a famous atheist named Richard Dawson. I don't know that he's still as famous as he once was. He's actually a biologist. Uh, he purports to be a philosopher. He's kind of crummy at it, but um, famous atheist conceded that he understands the draw of religion. He says, after all, who would not want a God of the universe being all about me? And unfortunately, that's how a lot of people teach Christianity, that God is all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about, he's, he's there for me. He exists to make me happy. He's there to serve me. So I kind of understand why Richard Dawkins has that uh, I think I said Dawson earlier, it's Richard Dawkins. I understand why he has that complaint against us. We have to guard against that mentality because our salvation is not just about us. We, we, get, we benefit from it, we become part of it, but it's not about us. You see, God is involved with saving the world and Mary acknowledges this in her prayer as she moves on. Look at all of the universal truths that she just stacks on top of each other again and again and again. He has shown great strength with his, with his arms. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, exalted those of humble estate. And she just piles it on over and over and over again. These, these universal deliverances that God has given. You see, Mary understands that what God is doing in her is not just about her. Mary understands and puts in the song that her story is part of God's bigger story. 
God, part of God's bigger deliverance, her salvation is her entrance into God's kingdom, not God's entrance into hers. She understands that it is not uh, her inviting God into her life, but it is God inviting her to participate in the kingdom life that he offers. And so it's not all about her. And since the second part speaks of the kingdom aspects of this coming uh, salvation, she says in verse nine that he has done great things, yes, for her, but he has also done great things for the world. And she just stacks them on top of each other, one, one, again, and again, and again. First, she says in verse 51, I won't, I won't do this with all of them, but I can't resist the first one. She says that he has shown strength with his arm. And again, we often, we often just read over that, but let's, let's just reflect on that for just a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you into some of my meditation on this passage this week. And, and just reflect on this for just a moment. Think of all creation. Think of everyone. I mean, just look around and look at creation. Look at just in this building. Look at the wonderful marvels that, that the human being is. Look outside at all of nature. Look in the sky and see all of the stars that are unimaginable distances away and unimaginably big. How big is the earth? And yet how many earths fit in the sun? And yet how many suns fit in the nearest star? Alpha Centauri, I think. How many, I mean, just how big is the universe? Unbelievably big. But then you look at, you look under a microscope and you find out that our universe is not only incredibly big, but it is incredibly small. It defies the imagination. It defies anything that we are able to think of, or at least I'm able to think of in my head. How many earths can fit the sun? How many atoms are in this room right now as we speak? Billions upon billions. And yet, how did God create it all? How did he create it all? Psalm 33, six, it says, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Everybody turn around to your neighbor just real quick and just say some word, just say hi. Let me ask you a question. How many of you felt even the air, the vapor, that came out of their mouth. It's so weak, it probably didn't even reach it. You might've smelt it, but you probably didn't. <laughs> you, probably, you probably didn't even feel it, right? Because it was that weak, right? That's all the effort it took for God to create our universe. That's all it took for God to create everything. And yet, when God showed his strength to save us, he bared his strong arm. In other words, and the power that God expended to save our souls, he used the strength of his arms, not merely the vapor of his breath. 
He has shown us his strong arms. I always think of, uh, always think of this whenever, this is a common refrain in, in, um, in the Old Testament that God has bared his arms. And I, I, I always think of wrestling. Not wrestling, that's the Olympics. I'm talking about wrestling on the CW, okay? And what do they do whenever they wanna show their strength? What do they do? If I had Joey in here this morning, you know, he would be better at this, but you know, and they're showing, they're showing their arms because their arms is a symbol of their strength and their power and their victory. And when God has, when God has accomplished the victory for us, what does he do? He bears his arms. And he shows us the incredible power that went into saving our soul. He won the victory. And now he's flexing so that everybody can see his strength. To create everything around us, all it took was this mere breath, but to save us, it took his arms. What an amazing image. What an amazing thought. Mary continues. Let me just say this, that the power to save us from our sins took the unimaginable power of God and yet he gladly extended it for you and for me. For the joy that was set before him, he extended all of his strength, all of his power to save your soul by dying on the cross for your sin. That's what brings us joy this year. It's not the presence, even though those make us happy. But what brings us joy is knowing that our God has spared no expense to save our soul and give us the greatest gift of all, himself. Himself. Mary continues, he scattered the thoughts of the proud. He's fought against the pride of our hearts. Notice this next two. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. There is an already not yet aspect of this and that the promise is given, the kingdom has begun, but it is not complete yet. This is still in process. And yet we know that there is a reversal of the cultural norms. There is a reverse. There is, he has turned the world upside down and brought it back to his glory and brought it back to his plan. And most of all, in verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. He has kept his word, his promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. Remember, we talked about this in Galatians that, that he did not say to sons, to offsprings, but he said to offspring, who is the promised child of Abraham? 
It is Christ. And it is through Christ that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we see this in Paul in Galatians chapter three and verse seven. He says, who are, the, who are the true children of Abraham? It is those that are of the faith that are the sons of Abraham. In other words, God has extended all of this power and he will do so to remember his promises to you. To remember his promises and what he has done for you. God will take everything about this fallen world and all the exercise of his power and he will redeem it. He will redeem it. He will restore it. All the sinful orders of the world will be gone. All the consequences of the fall will be gone. Sin and sickness, even death itself, it will all be no more because he has, he has defeated it all. And just like Mary, who understands, beloved, our salvation is bigger than just our individual salvation. God has brought us into his kingdom. He has brought us into his redemption. He has brought us into his plan to live as his people, to gain all the benefits of his doing so by his grace for his glory forever and ever. Amen. And we are invited to participate in that life. We're invited to participate in everything that flows out of that. It's an amazing thing. Jesus, in the last days of, of his earthly life, before being crucified, he prayed, Lord, I pray not just for his current apostles, but for all those who will believe on their word. In other words, all of us. And he says, I pray that they may be one. But he doesn't stop there. Everybody stops there and talks about the unity of the church. But what does he say? He says that you and that, that they may be one as you and I are one. In other words, we are invited into the life and communion of the very Trinity of God. That his glory he has shared with us. His, that divine communication, that divine communion. They have invited us in. When I was a kid, I'd be talking to my friends sometime and somebody else would come up and they would start to try to involve and I'd say something smart. I look like this is an A, B conversation. See your way out of it. Did you ever, did you ever say that when you were a kid? You ever say that as you're an adult? You know, I've done that too. <laughs> but you know, the Trinity says, this is an ABC conversation. Welcome. Welcome. Do you know the incredible privilege it is to be of the redeemed of God? Do you know what an incredible state we have in Christ? Do you know that our identity is in Christ is not dependent upon anything that we have done or will do, but it is all by his grace that we have received by faith alone. And that is why we harp here. Call us reformed, call us whatever you want, but that is why we harp here. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, on the authority of scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Put whatever label you want on that. But beloved, that is the gospel. And that is 
that is more than just phrases. That is the lifeblood of our salvation. I don't care what label you put on it. It's the lifeblood of who we are, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the authority of scripture alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That's the life that we are invited into. And this is what brings us joy. That spirit-filled disposition of soul that we are a joyful people. That's why we sing. That's why we can sing a weird German tune and still get as much as we can out of it. I mean, just celebrate it because it expresses the truths of our faith in such a beautiful way. And it reminds us again that the child who was born in Bethlehem is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He has looked upon the affliction of his people and he has acted to save us. Maybe you don't know the salvation of God this morning. Maybe you are here this morning and you don't really know the true joy of the season. Maybe, maybe you've forgotten the, the joy you just haven't been cultivating it in your life and you've allowed disappointments of life to kind of take over. We, we do that, we do that. And, and again, it's, it's normal, it's normal. It doesn't make you a bad Christian. It doesn't mean you're broken. It doesn't mean that you are this or that. It means you're human. And it means that God is ready to offer his mercy to you. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. But whatever it is, you can cultivate that joy that he gives you in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Just meditate on these truths, reflect on them. Kind of like, like we reflected on, uh, on Mary's saying that, that God has shown the strength of his arm. Reflect on these truths, just think about them and what they mean. Use those reflections as fuel to pray them to God. And just acclimate them into your heart. Bring them into your heart. Make them your focus. And when those negative thoughts start to come in, remind yourself of these truths. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his excellent book, Spiritual Depression, he says that, one of the biggest problems we have is that we listen to ourselves too much and we don't talk to ourselves enough. And when these negative things start to overtake our thoughts, just preach the truth back to them. Engage them, attack them with truth. That sorrow may last for the night, but Christ's joy comes in the morning. If you're here and you don't know the message of Christ, we would love to share that with you. We're about to have a time of, of invitation. I've never liked that term in particular just because when, the, when that time comes to an end, you think the invitation comes to an end. That, that is not true. Beloved, the invitation started the moment you walked in here this morning. But if you want to know how you can know the joy of Christ, how you can have the gospel, 
Or maybe you're here and you need help just cultivating these things in your life. We wanna pray with you. We wanna help you. And we wanna offer you guidance and counsel if we can do that. Whatever your need is, we invite you to come. Our Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your people, Lord, and your, those who have taken these truths into their hearts. And I have no doubt in this room that there are those who are here this morning who, are, who stand in need of remembrance, who stand in need of reminders. And so, Father, may the elements of worship have given that to them this morning, the songs we sang, the prayers we prayed, the, the truths we rehearsed. Father, may they all culminate together to renew our joy in Christ. Lord, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. And do not let us forget who we are in you. Father, you've given everything to us. And we praise you because we know we stand unworthy. What an amazing gift. What an amazing reversal. And I ask this morning that it's just a little more true. A little more understood in our hearts as we continue on through Advent. Let's stand together. I was just gonna ask our musicians to play for a couple of minutes just to, just to let you reflect on what all has been said. If there's someone here who you want to come forward and ask for counsel, you can certainly do that. But I would just invite you to reflect on the passage we looked at this morning, Mary's song, and uh, just how you might apply that to your life this week. Let's do that. Mm-hmm.